uh, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at a few verses from chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. Okay, here we go. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Two verses, actually, that's it for today. (laughs) Surprise, I bet you were kind of like preparing yourself for the whole chapter. Well, um, as I've said before, as much as I love reading lists of names... Uh, this time, I thought we'll just tackle a few verses. It's fascinating the way that this book is written. Um, if you've been with us uh, before now, you may be aware that we're looking at uh, a series through Nehemiah. When we write something up, we tend to think of writing the important stuff and all the kind of extra information which is key to it as well. I think, well, we'll put that at the end in a footnote or we'll put that in the end in an, app- in an appendix. That would be more our style of writing up a document or what have you, but in Nehemiah you get everything in um, in one. So you kind of get the action, and then you get these lists of names of people who are uh, recorded as, as having been involved in that particular part of the story. But like I say, uh, this morning we're just looking at those two verses. We're now deep into the second half of this uh, book, and um, it's really been building up to this point all the way from chapter 7 and verse 4. The first half of the book builds up to the point at which the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. But we found out in chapter 7 and verse 4, that kind of midpoint, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people living in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the common people for registration by families, and so on. So we saw there in chapter 7, verse 4, a problem. The wall is up, but this city, the city of God, the holy city, is still really a ghost town. There's not many people living there. Uh, it's still largely ruined inside the boundary of the wall. It's not yet a completely safe, uh, habitable place uh, to put down roots. And so... The second half, like I say, has been building up to this point where they're going to repopulate the city. So all that we've seen so far in terms of a restoration of worship and devotion to God's word and joyful celebration, people finding their identity again as God's people, all of that has been fantastic and so important, but it's been building up to something. It's been building up to this moment when the city gets repopulated. This is a point where things transition from temporary visitors, temporary workers, to permanent residents. The city needs permanent residents. But the challenge is, this city is still a less than desirable place to live. Most people were living in the country. That's the great aim. That's the, often the, the goal of British culture. When you've really made it, you move out of the city and you move to a tranquil, peaceful, rural, country setting. Not too far away, perhaps, um, from urban civilization, but you get to enjoy 
uh, peaceful living. At least that's maybe what some would regard as their, their goal in life. And so for them, the more desirable option has been to be out in the countryside. That's where they've developed. That's where they've developed their agriculture. That's where uh, smaller towns and villages have been populated. And Jerusalem, well, it's just a wreck. Um, a ghost town. And still, it's vulnerable to attack, even though the walls are, are, are up. So it needs defending. And it needs developing and in the city of Jerusalem is the temple of God where he his presence dwells and therefore it's incredibly important that there is a population in Jerusalem to make it a sustainable city to make it somewhere where people can live so that all those uh, so that life can go on there and so that the temple can be supported for us we are called to bless the city that we are a part of, putting down roots, seeking to promote and benefit the areas where we live and work. We're called to bless the city. We're also called to build the church. And really, in terms of applying this book, those two threads run all the way through. We're called to build the church, the, the new temple, God's dwelling place in the here and now. Want to see God's city today, as it were, not a physical location, but his people spread over the globe to be populated with more and more people from every nation, every background, to be ultimately one day a part of his new Jerusalem, enjoying and glorifying God forever in eternity. That's what we are called to. Let's bless this city and let's build the church you might spot that our name suggests the two as well. City Church, Sheffield. It's all important. Now, we're going to see, uh, the first question we're going to look at is this. How did they successfully repopulate the city? And we're going to see there are, there are two answers to that question. That results in looking at a further question later on. But first of all, how did they repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Well, first of all, they repopulated it with courageous leaders. There was an incredible surge of courageous leadership. Let's read just half a verse. Uh, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. Yep, the walls are up, but the city is not yet a very desirable or appealing Location. What do we find the leaders doing, however? They're going ahead. They're leading from the front. They're putting down roots. They are all in. They are holding nothing back. They're not playing a waiting game. This is the second half, and it's a time for, for courage. They're laying down their own lives. And I love the way that, in fact, they're really following Nehemiah's example. Nehemiah came all the way from Susa to Jerusalem and he laid down his life. He became the governor. He had a position. He was a leader. But we saw in the earlier chapters, I think chapter 5, what his style of leadership was. Typically, the governor would tax the people and uh, to make sure that he was able to live in a, in a prestigious palace. The people therefore would be paying for the hospitality that he would be showing to other officials. But we saw, no, he, 
Nehemiah was different. Nehemiah didn't tax the people. Nehemiah paid his own way. He took it upon himself to to pay to be hospitable to the 150 officials plus others that he had a responsibility uh, towards. Now we see all these leaders. They're not taxing the people. They're not saying, you go ahead and we'll follow after. They're saying, we're leading. We're heading into this. They wouldn't have known, perhaps, who was going to be with them. If we make this bold move, is anybody going to follow? The leaders might have thought, we are putting our all into this. It remains to be seen whether or not others will come and settle here. It's like they're holding their cards in their hand and Jesus kind of raises the stakes. And they look at their hand and they think, we've, we've not, we're not sufficient for this. They think, no, but we're with Jesus, right? We're all in as well. Our hand is rubbish, to pardon a gambling metaphor. Um, <laughs> we've got nothing in our hand, but we're trusting him. And he's got all of this in his hands. And so they're courageous. Uh, They're not armchair leaders. They're not playing a game, moving pawns around the board, saying, you go there, you do this, you do that. No, they're taking it upon upon themselves. We're all in. We're going for this. We're believing for what God has. So courageous leadership counts the cost. Courageous leadership is totally honest. It's not hiding from the facts. It's not hiding the facts from other people. There is going to be a cost. If we've been living in the countryside and we're settled there and we're established there and our family business is thriving there or at least we're making a decent living, we're able to sustain our life, it's going to cost us to uproot from that settled situation and come into a city where the chances are we're going to need to roll up our sleeves and build our own house and take part in helping this city develop economically, socially, spiritually. In all ways, this city is a blank canvas. It's going to need hard work. Right, we're all in. We're going for it. So it's counting the cost, but it's preoccupied with God. It's not moaning or grumbling. It's full of faith, and therefore it's bold and decisive. Courageous leadership, however, is not pressuring. It's not pressuring other people. Come on, you make it happen. It's not reckless or blasé. But also, courageous leadership is not tentative, just kind of adopting a conservative position. This city and God's church needs courageous leaders. Leaders who are going to do that, count the cost with full honesty, but full of faith. And we're going for it. In military history, courageous leaders, I suppose we could look at a few. Just to mention one is Napoleon. Napoleon, when he was an artillery officer, uh, took part in the Siege of Toulon, I think in 1793. And he established 
a position for the artillery. But others said to him, there's no way you are going to find anybody to man that position because it is so exposed. It's just too risky. The stakes are too high. Well, he, so the story goes, uh, the record goes that he had a kind of knack for, for motivating. And so he put up a placard and just described it as the battery for men without fear. And it goes, it was never unmanned. It was never lacking in soldiers who were prepared to put their life on the line to win a victory and win it they did. Decisive, bold, not conservative, not just waiting to see what happens and see how things pan out, but courageous leadership. We've seen that, I suppose, more importantly in, uh, in the scripture it, with Nehemiah through this book. Think of David. David and his mighty men, men rallied to him. They weren't mighty to start with, however. They were broken people. But they saw something in David. They saw his courageous leadership. They rallied to him and they became courageous as well. And what a surprise when we see Jesus in the New Testament arriving on the scene, beginning his ministry, gathering disciples. I think he's gathering broken people. His 12 disciples weren't the pick of the crop. They weren't the best on offer for a rabbi going through Palestine. Fishermen that have perhaps been overlooked. A tax collector, probably been spat on by his fellow countrymen. And Jesus picks these guys and says, come, follow me. Jesus, a man of incredible courage, our prime example of godly leadership. Men rally to him, not kind of just being shooed ahead. They don't have to prop Jesus up all the time, but they're learning from him and they're following him in his courageous footsteps. But courageous leadership is not telling others what to do from a comfy armchair. It's, it's laying down our lives. Napoleon laid down a lot of other people's lives. Maybe quarter of a million troops lost in all the various conflicts that he led a nation into. We have a courageous leader who said, no, I'm laying down my life for all the troops. And that's what we see in Jesus. One that's so great we've been singing about. His greatness can be measured in how far he was prepared to come down. How much he was prepared to give up and not take a hold of for his own benefit. He went ahead knowing what it would cost him. Utterly honest, not hiding from the facts, but preoccupied with God. What God had said in his word, full of faith and therefore bold for our benefit. So courageous leadership. How did they repopulate the city? With courageous, brave leaders. But this is not just an account about how important it is to have bold and courageous leaders. What we see here as well, secondly, is that this was this city was repopulated with willing volunteers. So 
in one and a half verses that remain. It says, the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. People volunteered to, to join in with this plan of action. And I love the way that the King James uh, version of the Bible uh, translates uh, Psalm 110. Uh, you might recognize it as I say it, but in the King James Version, in Psalm 110 and verse 3, uh, we are told, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. I don't know what the NIV says, I've forgotten, but you, you've got to love the King James from time to time, haven't you? Thy p- people shall be willing in the day of thy power. It's a day of your power, O God, and we're up for it. It's not just the leaders, we are all in. The leaders would be the minority group. They'd be in the minority of the population. And the leaders would be unable to defend and develop the city by themselves. So having courageous leaders is only part of the picture. Mostly, the picture is made up of willing volunteers. Sometimes we can make everything all about leaders. And uh, I just think it just starts to become a little bit meaningless. Uh, when I was in the sixth form at school, if you were in the sixth form, and if you weren't a prefect, by the end of the sixth form, you must have been some kind of subhuman. Everybody in the sixth form just more or less automatically would become a prefect. Supposedly a position of, of prestige and responsibility, but really it just became meaningless because everyone was one. No one was laying, there was no sacrifice involved. It was just wearing a different colored tie. And it really didn't mean much at all. So there's no point of saying it's all about leaders. It's all about, you know, aspire to leadership. It's a good thing to aspire to leadership. But God's like, no, this is about a people. And so, yeah, of course, there are going to be some who in a variety of ways, perhaps through employment, through uh, a role in the city, are leading and some in the church leading. But imagine if we took that approach to church life and we made 150 people elders and there are two people sat down being exhorted by the 150 elders. Come on, we've got to make this happen. Join us. <laughs> Just be stupid. Um, the, the, the big picture here is, yeah, courageous leaders, but... Willing volunteers. People are saying, we're all in as well. But you might read through those verses and have a different question spring to mind. We'll look at how they did it. But think, well, what of their method? They, they, they cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem. You might say, Does that sound particularly willing? Does that sound as though that really involved volunteers? It sounds to us like drawing the short straw. Imagine, if you will, that the weather outside is just gloriously hot and sunny. And uh, it's probably, you know, 25 degrees in the shade. Just a cool breeze. And, um, you know, the, the picnic... Let's say it's on us. It's, it's a barbecue. 
and everything is there. And there's a bouncy castle. Well, there is, in fact, down at Enclave Park, but you have to pay for it. Um, and we say, right, so uh, if, if you, we're going to have a picnic now, but actually something very important has come up. Uh, so we just need five people. You won't be able to go to the picnic after all. We need five people um, because all the drains in the Jubilee Centre have blocked. And we know there are some real courageous leaders among you. Uh, so just a show of hands, please. Would you please raise your hand if you would like to um, to join me? No. Uh, <laughs> if you would prefer, if you would like to bless the people of God and bless this city by unblocking uh, the drains, the rods are available. Uh, the, the gloves just have a few holes in. You should be fine. Um, oh, no one. Okay, well, no one's doing that. No one's raising their hand. Well, it's got to be done, I'm afraid, folks. And so how we're going to handle it is this. We're going to uh, draw lots. And uh, if you get the short straw, there are only five short straws. If you get the short straw, that means that you've got to stay behind. I lead the church, so I will go and get a coffee and I will cheer you on. All right? That's the feel that casting lots might have for us. We, we don't use that as a method of making decisions. And for us, it's kind of, well, more than tinged with a very negative feel. However, for the people of God in Israel, not only in the Old Testament, but we see it in the book of Acts as well, in the New Testament, is this was a, a kind of tried and trusted, faith-filled way of discerning the will of God. That's not always a negative thing. So when the, uh, when the, the, when the 11 apostles realized they needed to see somebody else appointed to join them to make the numbers back up to 12, they realized that two guys were eligible for that. And before God, they cast lots. I don't think those guys were particularly reluctant and they needed to cast lots. I think they would both have been up for it. Um, but only one was needed. Two were eligible, but one was needed. So they drew lots and uh, one of them comes in to join their number. So this isn't necessarily, I don't know at all, tinged with that kind of negative feel. Um, that was how they heard God uh, on more than one occasion for very key moments in their history. That leads us to another question. We've heard about how they repopulated the city, courageous leadership, willing volunteers. And we've also just then begun to see, well, that's, that's how they heard from God in that particular moment. It's quite amazing, really. I know Nehemiah and the others came up with this plan of action. We, we need about one out of ten to move in from the countryside. That would mean that perhaps the population would have been around about 5,000, maybe a little bit more than that, to start making Jerusalem a proper city again. Um, it was really like the nation was saying, yes, we, we're giving ourselves. They were used to the principle of tithing, giving a, giving a tenth. Normally they would do that in crops or livestock or money. But now they're kind of tithing themselves. They're saying, we're, we're giving to God and we're going to give a tenth to God. But we're, we're all in. Great, 
in a sense, a great picture of worship in itself and sacrificial giving and trust in God. But the question that it raises for us to consider is this. How do we hear God? How do we hear God personally? How do we hear God as a church? How do we discover his specific will for our lives? How do we discover the tasks that he personally assigns to us? Or to consider it as a church, how do we discern the will of God for the specific ways in which he wants us to build and bless this city? J.I. Packer has written a fabulous book on Nehemiah. It's called A Passion for Faithfulness. And in talking about how Nehemiah himself heard God and God's call in, on his life, he mentions four factors. And I'm going to run, these, run through these because these are impre- incredibly important for us as we continue to head into what for us has been described as our second half. You can Look in the magazine, if that sounds a bit of a foreign concept to you, um, in one of the articles in the magazine, fresh out today. What does it mean to be in the second half? Well, in whatever we're heading into as a church, we want to know that we're hearing God. So how do we, individually and together, hear God and discern his will? Four things. Firstly, what does the Bible say? The Bible tells us and shows us what is worth pursuing, what God encourages, and what is not worth pursuing, what is forbidden, or what is discouraged. And so that we can be sure that God's purpose for our lives and for this church will be found within, as it were, the boundaries, within the walls, within the limits, that his holy word sets. So if something is good in here, it's good for our lives. If something in here is bad, it's not for us to pursue. And the Bible, therefore, actually re-educates our sense of priority. It's not just about coming to the Bible and finding a word that says, Dan, um, I really want you to unblock the drains this week. Um, But I will find in the Bible truth that helps me see biblically what is a good priority, what is important. And so some things in life might appear very, very special, very, very important. But you read the Bible and it doesn't really necessarily point in that direction. There'll be things in life that really don't seem that special, don't really seem that fantastic. But if you read the Bible, actually, they can and do become appealing. Walking around Jerusalem was not appealing. But if Nehemiah and the others at that time were reading the Bible, they'd see, but this is the holy city. This is going to be a city without walls because in the future its population will grow and grow and grow. And God itself will be the wall that protects it. That's what we're believing. So it says here that 
um, you know, one out of every ten were to go and live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Do you see the point? They could have, if they were just going on the basis of facts and how it looked at the time to their eyes, they would have said, go and live in that wasted, desolate city. But no, biblically, we see that, and they saw that Jerusalem is the holy city. This is the special city. This is the dwelling place of the Almighty. This will be the eternal city. I'm going to give my life to that. You know, so when we, when biblical values get a hold of us, we can see more clearly what is God's purpose? What is God's will? Biblical values got a hold of me. At the age of 12, I had a set idea of what I wanted life to be about. And if I had stuck with that priority, I would not be here. This weekend, I would be in Monaco. And probably about now, I'd be sat in a Formula One car. At that time, I would have preferred it to be a Williams, but I'm not so fussed now. But definitely a Red Five on the front. That was, that was my vision. That was my goal. Now, since then, <laughs> oh dear, sorry. There are a few reasons why I'm not in Monaco this weekend. <laughs> and to be fair, I suppose, it's just one reason is, actually, I've got a different passion now. I've got a different priority. I will look at the results now and again, but it's not what my life is about. God has shown me something else. Something that at the age of 12 wouldn't have seemed that appealing to me. It didn't seem that I'd grown up in church and it was just ordinary. And maybe for some people coming into church, if they've not grown up in church, can just kind of think, well, it's ordinary or it's weird or what's going on. But God got a hold of me because... He got a hold of me with this. That's just number one. <laughs> so what does the Bible say? Secondly, what does the Spirit say? God, by his Holy Spirit, will often, sometimes, give us particular desires, special concerns, or little nudges about what he might particularly want to involve us doing. Now, we've already seen that in the book of Nehemiah, with Nehemiah recording his own, his own memoirs. We've seen the phrase a couple of times. Uh, one example would be Nehemiah sept, uh, chapter 7 and verse 5. Uh, my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and all the people. Or God put it into my heart to rebuild the walls. God nudged him. God got a hold of his desires. And he did that, yes, through the word, but also by his Holy Spirit. We see it in, in Nehemiah. We see it also in uh, the book of Acts, where we see the Holy Spirit leading, the Holy Spirit nudging, the Holy Spirit guiding. In this situation, it was Paul. And um, if we read in, in Acts 16 and verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Well, it, it wasn't in the pages of scripture itself that Paul woke up one morning and read, don't go to Phrygia or Galatia right now. I'll, I'll allow you to do that some other time. 
Somehow, the Holy Spirit is keeping them from going into those places. They came to the border of Mysia. They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. The Holy Spirit is kind of guiding them through. Actually, not Phrygia right now, not Galatia. What's going on? I don't quite understand this. Oh, it's become clear. A vision in the night given by God by the Spirit reveals that for right now, go be courageous in Macedonia. And so we're to be led by what the Spirit says. Now, sometimes this particular factor, if you like, has been underplayed, undervalued, ignored. Sometimes it can be overemphasized as if it's the only factor that matters. No, there's a whole number of ways. I'm going to mention four, and we've just got to number two. Um, It's important, and it can be very different for different people at different times, that we are listening to and believing and expecting that the Holy Spirit will speak and make things clear and nudge us and direct us in our steps. But we have to be aware that self-deception is easy. It's possible to give the impression that all that matters is what I have in my heart. All that matters is what the Holy Spirit has said to me. And nothing can contradict it. And it's my way of blocking out influence or advice from elsewhere. Well, no, we're seeing it's definitely a part of the picture. It's very important, but it's one of four. And they all need to be considered. So what does the Bible say? What does the Spirit say? Thirdly, what does the body say? We need the perspective and wisdom of others in the church. Had a recent example of this, having a conversation... um, with someone, they're saying, uh, exploring an idea, exploring a sense of God's call, possibly. I've been just spending some time talking about it. And the conversation has, uh, has moved on. It's been a conversation for a little while. And they said, actually, Dan, if you and Mark had expressed concern about this, even as an idea, then our faith in God They didn't say it precisely, but for preaching I'm saying it like this. Our faith in God is such that we would have accepted that. And we would put it, we would have put it down. We're not so trusting our own nudges and senses of direction that we're not able to hear what the Bible says. Yes, what the Spirit says, but also what the body says. Again, it can be overemphasized. This is not the only factor. What do people in the church think? What do my leaders think? It can be overemphasized. And so, when that's the case, you get leaders who are perhaps a little bit more like Napoleon, moving pieces round the board from a safe vantage point. You go here, you do that. No, you mustn't go over there. Laying down other people's lives. Squashing, potentially, people's consciences. Now, God doesn't want to squash your conscience. God wants to make you courageous in the purposes that he's clearly bringing out for you, for us together. So it's important this doesn't get overemphasized, but equally, it's very important we don't undervalue it either. 
where submitting, bringing something to the attention of my core group leader or one of the elders or a, tr- a, a mature, trusted, wise believer in the church uh, is just a formality. I heard of this happening in another church recently, so it's safe to say. A worship leader had um, identified before a particular Sunday the, the songs they felt to use for that the forthcoming meeting. And so they put those songs down in an email and sent the email through to some of the elders and one of the guys who heads up the worship team. And they get back to him and an email and say, uh, that's great, there's a lot of mileage in these songs, they're going to help us, but this one there, we actually would suggest not that song. What about this one instead? And the response that came back was, no, I've chosen the songs, I've felt what God wants us to sing and so I'm going to stick with my original list well why on earth were you emailing it through to your leaders then that's just bizarre you've so heard God that just email would seem like just a desire to just show me approval just just say I've done well that's all I want to hear are you you not prepared on a relatively small issue um, depending on what the song was um a relatively small issue. I don't think that song's going to be appropriate. <laughs> oh, we could go there far with that, but we won't. Um, so it's not to be it's not to be overemphasised, um, but it mustn't just be allowed to become a bit of a lifeless formality either. No, we are a body. We are connected one with another. That's how God's designed it. He is the head, and He's connected to His church. That he loves and he gave his life for. And he's got unique and important parts for us all to play as members of his body. But we discover that and we work it through together. Um, Not as a formality, but as a dialogue and in submission to God seeking him for the way forward, in whichever way it might be. So what does the Bible say? What does the Spirit say? What does the body say? Fourthly... What do circumstances say? Now that might sound totally unspiritual. What do you mean, what what, what do circumstances say? It means this, we can trust God that if we've seen in the word a suggestion of, of God's purpose for our life, that the spirit has brought some affirmation to, personal nudges, but perhaps also prophetic words that couldn't be contrived and so on, and we've brought that to leaders and so on, and, and that's being weighed and worked through, well, then we, we trust God for the opportunity. Um, God is provident. That means he's in control of absolutely every circumstance, which means that if all of that has been accurate so far, then in his timing, he will bring the right opportunity to bear. That might involve us seizing an initiative or waiting and seeing how things develop. But either way, there will be a sense in which God brings the circumstances kind of into line. If those circumstances never come, it is possible, likely, that actually we didn't quite hear God. And we need to hear again. Might be similar, but maybe we had a certain 
idea of how it would all come to pass. And so we latched onto that idea. That's what that specifically is the will of God for me. Well, maybe it was a bit broader than that, but we've just latched onto something. And sometimes it can be that when, when the power of a personal prophetic word is overemphasized and these other factors are ignored, people just get really, really confused and messed up. Maybe God's bringing any number of opportunities through life, but I'm so locked into this thing that I once had a kind of word about that I, I, I can't really get involved. I'm kind of holding back in the here and now. I'm kind of just playing a waiting game. One day, one day I'll be this. One day I'll do that. Now sometimes, like Abraham, there is a long wait until God's promises come to fruition. And sometimes we've just got to hide those words away. And so I still believe it, but I'm just, I'm not going to allow it to distract me from how I can serve God in the here and now. Let's not get distracted by how might God might want us to serve now because we're just trying to grasp a dream that might be 25 years away or might never be right. We might have heard wrong. That's why it's so important that we don't underemphasize or over-egg any of those four factors. We need them all. We need the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God. We need one another. And we trust God to bring things about in His timing. Before we wrap up for a conclusion, I would just like to point out how I think all of those four factors, all those four ways of hearing God have recently and profoundly been demonstrated for us by Mark and Debbie. Currently in Canada for six months, Mark is currently an elder of this church. And we have seen now as a church the journey that God has led them through. Years and years and years back, maybe having just a nudge from the Spirit, a sense that their long-term future would not be here in Sheffield, but that God was calling them to go to the other side of the Atlantic and serve God's purposes there. It was just a nudge, just some whispers. What did they do with that? Jump up and down straight away and make a lot of noise? No, they just tucked it away and they waited and they watched. And they saw how other things began to emerge. Actually, opportunities that came to connect with leaders in Canada. Not only that, um, but a growing number of quite profound prophetic words directing them there. Still kind of thinking, well, well what's the opportunity exploring the opportunity that exists before then God clarifies again, right, it's Milton. Go to Milton in Ontario. Go and join Milton Bible Church and build the kingdom and bless the city there. And all the way through, what did they do with those prophetic words? They didn't get a megaphone, but they came and said, we need to, this is what we feel God is saying, but we need to submit it 
to others. We need other people's help in weighing this. And because they've done that, because they've been courageous leaders, preoccupied with God, full of faith, counting the cost, totally honest, not hiding the facts, being bold and decisive, not pressuring other people, not being reckless or blasé, not being tentative, because they've been courageous leaders, trusting in God, they're now preparing to go. And we're preparing to send. All of those four factors. What does the Bible say? What does the Spirit say? What does the body say? What do circumstances say? A prominence. They have tested their nudges. They've tested what they felt God say. And now I believe there is a vast group of people, not only in this church, but in other churches as well, who can say, yes, it seems right to the Holy Spirit and to us to say, go. It's not just your idea, Mark and Debbie. Holy Spirit is saying, go. And now is the time. Now is the time to be courageous. So there is a time for bold steps. But there's also a time for working all of these things through rightly. So we are heading into the second half. In the book of Nehemiah, we're in the second half of the book. It's about more than just having good times of worship. It's about more than being devoted to him in prayer personally. It's about more than just God's people having joy. All of those things are important, but it's heading somewhere. Where is it heading? It's heading to a city getting repopulated. It's heading, uh, for us, more people responding to the gospel might involve further change. It might be a kind of sense of transition from somehow temporary visitors to right permanent residents. We're all in. Jesus is raising the stakes and saying, are you all in? Are you all in with my purposes? Or you might well look at your hand and think, well, I don't really have a great hand here, God. Can you just leave me out of this round? So no, but you're with me, aren't you? Are you all in? Here what we see is actually leaders announcing a plan and then drawing lots to find out God's will. Leaders boldly moving forward and thy people being willing on the day of thy power. It's a time for courage, for a rise of faith. It's a time for trusting God that his specific purpose for you, his specific plan for me, is fulfilled together in his story for this church and in his story for this city. Do you have faith that God can weave your story into God's story. Do you have faith, if you are kind of regularly here, do you have faith that God is weaving your life into the life of this church? Or if you're from a church uh, elsewhere, you're just visiting, you have faith that God's able to do that. He's not going to just going to cut you out and cut you adrift. He's got a plan to weave you into something. 
and to bless you, to do you good. Do we have faith for God to reveal his will in unusual ways? I don't think we're going to use the casting of lots. It would be intriguing, wouldn't it? Core group shuffle, who knows what could come out of that. Um, But do you have faith for God to lead us through the men that he's put in position to lead the church? Casting a vision and then saying, are you all in? Maybe even strange methods, if not the casting of lots. It's a time to trust God. It's a time for great faith. It's a time to hear God. It's a time to believe the word. To hear the spirit. To trust the body. And to look to what he wants to do amongst us. We're going to worship just the moments of the band wants to come up and lead us. Let's pray.